in Daniel chapter 7. We studied it a little over a month ago. A Jewish man named Daniel has a prophetic dream and in this dream one whose appearance is like a son of man descends to earth accompanied by the clouds of heaven and as the rulers, the evil rulers of earth are defeated upon his coming, the son of man is then presented before the eternal heavenly judge and he is given all glory and honor and dominion over a forever kingdom of redeemed people from every nation and language of earth. The son of man in Daniel's dream in Daniel chapter 7 is great and glorious. He is high and lifted up and it was Daniel's dream that brought about an expectation, an earnest anticipation. The weary people of Israel awaited his arrival with great longing to come and rescue and redeem and console. And 450 years after Daniel had that dream, a young virgin woman from an insignificant backwoods town of Israel called Nazareth conceived and bore a son. A virgin woman conceived and bore a son. The son was born a human being, but he was so much more. Throughout the New Testament books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this son born to the virgin Mary, his name is Jesus, he repeatedly claims to be the son of man that Daniel had seen in that dream 450 years prior. At the outset of Jesus' ministry, at the outset of his adult ministry, he was led out into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. The same way, really, that Adam and Eve had been tempted in the garden, only when Jesus was offered power and glory and dominion from he who has no power or authority to give power or glory and dominion, Satan, Jesus did not flinch he didn't stray from his purpose for coming that was at the outset of his ministry and then as he traveled throughout the regions of Galilee and Capernaum and Caesarea Philippi and Jerusalem and and many more all over the region of Judea as he did he he declared he declared time and time again that the long-awaited kingdom of heaven had arrived with him And he demonstrated what he declared. He demonstrated his otherworldly power by healing the sick, the lame, the blind, the deaf, by by raising dead people to life. And while he did, he preached the message of repentance. He preached so that people would turn from their sinful, selfish ways to follow him into the forever kingdom he'd come to inaugurate. In Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28, which I'd invite you to turn to in your Bibles now or on your devices or in scripture journals, in this passage, Jesus and his 12 closest followers, 12 closest disciples are about to depart the city of Jericho 
for Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. That's, that's what's going on as we enter into this passage. And you need to know that just beyond our sight in this passage is you know, there's scores of awestruck Jews that are following Jesus around. There's notoriety. There's, there's some momentary fame around Jesus at the moment. And the mother of two of Jesus' closest disciples, James and John, seeing all the crowds and kind of the, the hoopla, she, she has a question for Jesus. I'd invite you to follow along as I read Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. <laughs> He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? What a powerful word when the incarnate word speaks God's word. Teach us this word by your Holy Spirit, Father. I pray that you would impress upon us how dearly, how wonderfully, how exactly these words apply to us. And pray that you would conform us to your word today for the glory of your Son, Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Of all the ways the Son of Man could have entered this world, of all the ways he could have spoken, of all the ways he could have carried himself, and the more that I think about it, of all the ways that I would have done it differently if it were up to me, I mean, 
If I would just blaspheme for just, if I were the son of man, like, oh my God, like I, I would have done it so differently is my point. And Jesus, from his lowly birth to his humiliating death and in every way in between, Jesus was and is a suffering servant. The son of man came as a suffering servant. He tells us himself in verse 28, the reason for his coming was to serve. Hear that again. The reason for his coming was to serve, to give up his life as a ransom for many. That is Christmas. That is what we celebrate during Advent. When we commemorate and celebrate that Jesus was born in our likeness, when we commemorate and celebrate that Jesus was held, the Son of Man was held and swaddled and laid in a manger, subjecting himself to the lowliest of human stature, when we commemorate and celebrate that Jesus' birth and upbringing and righteous obedience before God, that all of it, that in doing all of it, he was headed for the cross where he would suffer the penalty of our sin as a fitting substitute. When we celebrate, commemorate these things in these days, may we do so knowing that he carried out the Father's plan of redemption on our behalf. He did it to serve us, to serve you and me. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time. I'm not going to provide an outline this morning. Number one, because God didn't really make one clear to me. And two, because we're just going to walk through this verse by verse. So, so let's just do that. In verses 20 and 21, James and John and their mom <laughs> approach Jesus to request places of honor for themselves in the kingdom that Jesus was inaugurating. Now, I don't know about, look, I, I see myself all over this. In the second half of verse 20, their mom even takes a, like a prayerful posture. She gets down on her knees before the Son of Man in a prayerful posture, only to ask, though, if he'll make her sons awesome. <laughs> and here's where I, I mean, sweet mercy. Here's where I see myself. How many times have I lifted up prayers to God that, you know, I season it with some righteous language and, oh, for your glory, Lord, but really, I, like, like, it's, like it's about me and for making me kind of look and feel awesome. That's kind of what's going on here. Uh, here's a story. I've told this before to some degree. I used to write a lot of worship songs for my then church when I served as a worship pastor. And this, they were songs that were born in this desire you know, to and through and for God's glory. But man, here's how just insidious and subversive and just quick motives can change. The moment that I started to just taste the tiniest bit of recognition, I got a call from a record label in New York and then I 
got an announcement that some of the songs that I had written were playing on some radio stations in the Northwest. And I, I, as, soon, as, as soon as that happened, this isn't to gloat, this is to confess. As soon as that started to happen, you know what, you know what shape my prayers started to take? Oh, Lord, for your glory, increase the size of my platform. I'm willing to play on any big stage under the lights for your name. Right? I mean, like, look, you know, this might sound a bit like I'm self-deprecating. I'm not. That's what's going on in this pat. Yuck! Like, yuck! And look, we all want to be recognized in our own ways. In our own ways, we all want to be recognized. And it's actually, it's necessary that we learn how to humbly receive recognition or encouragement when and if it comes our way. But here's the thing. When recognition becomes our goal, see with me how it puts us in the exact same boat as James and John and James and John's mom here, kneeling before, oh, second and third in command, Lord, my, my boys, my, my sons, maybe, Right? In verse 22, Jesus turns to James and John. He's like, you don't know, uh, let me emphasize this better. You don't know what you're asking for. By asking to sit at my right and left hand, you don't know, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Now, Jesus here is referring to the cup of, of God's wrath against sin that he is to drink to the dregs. And James and John, they have no idea what they're asking for because their response to Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, we can, we can drink your cup. Now, they would, as all Christians will, James and John and all of us who bear the name of Christ they would go on to suffer opposition from a Jesus-hating world. I mean, anyone who bears the name of Jesus in the midst of a Jesus-hating world, you're going to drink a bit of that cup. You're going to share in his sufferings. And that's what Jesus means when he says in 23, you will drink my cup, but praise Jesus, we're not to drink all from that cup. And all of that cup. I mean, if we need a reminder of how much God hates sin, all we need to do is look at the cross. At the cross, God the Father placed onto God the Son yours and my every single transgression, every single thought in word and attitude and action that does not accord with complete righteousness. It was all placed upon, God the Father placed, imputed those sins upon and into his son every single one of our thoughts, words, and attitudes and actions that fall short of God's perfect design, Jesus willingly took upon himself at the cross in other words, Jesus willingly became 
in our place, the most wretched, prideful, despicable, wicked, sick abuser the world has ever seen. No wonder it was the will of the Father to crush him, as the prophet Isaiah foretold. No wonder his face was marred beyond human semblance. He became the absolute emblem of all that is sick and heinous and evil. Now the Jews, of course, willingly, by their own volition, they betrayed him. And the, and the Romans, by their own volition, they willingly were the ones to crucify Jesus on the cross. But let's not forget, we worship a sovereign God, both the Jews and the Romans, Jews and Gentiles, Pontius Pilate, Herod, the whole nine yards. They were all tools in the hand of a sovereign God whose will it was to put that emblem of sin to death, to crush him. This is the cup that Jesus would drink from. He would become the recipient of all heaven's holy wrath. In, in my place and in yours. Even though he had personally refrained and abstained from all sin. He became mine and yours. This is penal substitutionary atonement. That's a big theological word. He became your sin and mine, if you're in Christ, and he drank God's wrath against it to the dregs. There's none left. No wonder someone that I've read before can say there isn't any more condemnation if you're in Christ. If James and John only understood the depths that Jesus was about to go to, I mean, it was... Days before his triumphal entry, if they only understood, I don't think they would have been so cavalier in 23. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll suffer with you. We can drink your cup. Just give us number two and number three position. Man, I see myself all over that. I see myself all over that. In verse 24, the other 10 disciples... <laughs> They're understandably put off by James and John's hunger for glory. And this right here, verse, verse 24 should remind us that when we become, and it happens to me, when we become fixed on being recognized and applauded and lauded for our good behavior, for our service, for our knowledge or our experience, when we become fixed on being noticed for those things, other believers who have the Holy Spirit and dwelt in them, they can tell. <laughs> the other ten disciples, they become, they're put off. They're like, eh. Because we can see it in one another. You can see it in me. 
If I could only even confess to you yet again how lousy my sermon manuscript is this week, how horribly I have felt about it, and I did some soul searching, and God always does this. He teaches me a lesson based upon the actual text, and here I am thinking, gosh, Lord, you know what? I really wish I had an outline and something a little fancier to offer because it would make me look a little more put together. Years ago, a younger man who no longer worships here at Oaks, the younger man approached me after a Sunday service. He and his wife had visited for their second straight week, and he asked me where he could plug in and serve, and I love having those conversations. Love those conversations. But before I could answer, he told me, he filled in the the gaps and said, well, I'm willing to lead this and teach this. And if you have volunteers, I'll train them and I'll rally. And I started to notice a pattern that I think the other 10 disciples are noticing right here. Dude, I don't know you from Adam and you're volunteering to serve in all the prominent places that we have in this church that are under a spotlight. So I told Pastor Seth, stop it, knock it (laughs) out. No, I already said he doesn't go here anymore. And it doesn't even matter because I think we can all identify a little bit. Man, if I'm going to vacuum the carpets out there in between gathering or after the gathering, at least I just want to be seen by a couple of people, right? (laughs) Verse 24 should help us to remember that when we become fixed on all the wrong things, being recognized, applauded, lauded for our good behavior, our service, our devotion, our piety, look, other believers can tell. Stop with it. And I will too. Lord, help us. Help us, humble us. In verse 25, Jesus gathers, I love this. He gathers his disciples around him. You can almost just see him pulling, come in here, come in here. And he gives them a lesson about what is truly, what what true greatness is. And it's so counterintuitive. It's so otherworldly. That it could only come from the Son of Man, who is fully human, yes, but he's also so much more. In 25 through 27, he points out to his disciples, look, all the leaders of that time, the Roman Empire, the Gentiles, all those leaders, they were leveraging their positions for personal gain and glory. They were intoxicated with themselves and their self-intoxication was leading them to mistreat and abuse everyone who was underneath of them because fallen men, sinful men, ever since the first Adam, we seek greatness by elevating ourselves over others. But the son of man, the last Adam, demonstrates his true greatness in that he elevates others over himself. So otherworldly, and so it will be with all who bear the name of Jesus. You and I, who bear the name of Jesus, we don't have this down yet, And we'll never have it fully down before Jesus returns. Come, Lord Jesus. But we are growing in it. We're growing in servanthood. Verse 26. So those who are truly great among you are those who put others before themselves. 
in Jesus' economy, the last person in line is actually the first person in line. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Imagine that Cedar Point, you know, we're open. We're all there together because somehow we all just ended up there together. They open up the queue of a, of a brand new ride while we're all there. You know exactly the firestorm that would take place. I mean, every man, woman, and child would be running from all over the park. People would be pushed down. Kids would scrape their knees. Name calling would happen. We're all trying to fit into the queue. Now imagine that the owners, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Cedar Point, whatever their name is, imagine, you know, everybody's in line. The, the ride starts going and they're like, oh, well, and that was the test. Everyone who was at the end of the line who was letting people go in and, and then, oh, oh, you go, you go after me. You get to go first. That's the cheesiest example in the world, but that's the kind of week that I've had. And so here, here's, here's, here's the point. All right, that was a test. You who are first, you're going last. You who are last are going first. According to Jesus, it's not about climbing upward. It's about bowing downward. It's so otherworldly. I mean, you can't make this up. No person would make this up. The reason this is so counterintuitive is because you and I share the same prideful DNA as Adam and Eve who reached up for a piece of fruit that Satan claimed would make them as tall as God. We share the same prideful DNA as Cain. That's why this is so otherworldly. It's so counterintuitive. Cain's DNA courses through our blood. He elevated himself over his brother Abel by killing him. We share the same prideful DNA as all the citizens of Babel who built for themselves a skyscraper so that they could be as tall as God. It's no wonder why on my best day, everything in me is about me. And maybe this is why Christmas so often takes on the shape that it does. But our passage isn't over. Hope is not lost and it never has been because one who is like a son of man has come. One who was born in my likeness and yours. One who has been tempted in every way we are. One who knows what it's like to live in this sinful, selfish world. 28, the son of man, Jesus he came, excuse me, not to be served, but to serve. He came to disrupt the trend. Seated deep in our DNA, he came to disrupt it. He came to share our human likeness, yes, but he doesn't share our same sinful DNA because he was born of a virgin, he doesn't share our sinful DNA because he was conceived by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, with the clouds of heaven, Jesus was born to Mary. He is fully man and he is more. He is Emmanuel, God with us.
How's this for confounding? How's this for mysterious? How's this for inexplicably wonderful? Philippians 2, 6, that though he, Jesus, the Son of Man, is God in essence and form and function and glory, though that's all true, he did not count his godhood as something to be leveraged when he came to earth. He didn't come as a filthy rich dictator riding in on a chariot surrounded by an army of a million to come and just sweep the slate clean. He did not do that. Instead, he set aside his glory and being born in the likeness of you and me, he took the form of a humble servant who obediently carried out God's plan of redemption by offering himself on the cross as the substitute who would secure forgiveness and eternal life and sinners, sinners who are even staring straight at him during this discourse while they argue about who's going to sit in the highest places of honor around him. This is Christmas. This, this is what we celebrate. That the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. His perspective, his posture is marked with a greatness that is stunningly otherworldly, is it not? And the service hasn't stopped. He, he still serves us. The eternal son of God still serves us. After his death and resurrection and ascension, what did he do? He poured out his Holy Spirit for the indwelling of all his people. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is the resurrected son of God, do you know what that's called? That's called faith. And by faith, you have been made a new creation, born of the Holy Spirit, physically born of the same DNA as Adam and Eve and Cain, yes, but spiritually born again, an heir with Christ, the securer of every promise. Christ's death was your death. Christ's resurrection guarantees yours and Christ's perfect righteousness has been imputed to you it's important to understand what imputation is and is not imputation does not mean that Jesus has deposited all of his blamelessness and faultlessness and perfect righteousness into his own account and then he's He's given you his secret PIN number after you've pleaded hard enough to receive it, after you've demonstrated that you're trustworthy enough to have it, after you've done a bit of work to earn it, after you've proved that you're a fitting recipient of such privilege. Jesus did not deposit all of his merit, blameless, perfect, faultless merit. He did not deposit all of that into his own account to then give you the secret PIN number Imputation means that Jesus has deposited all of it into your account and mine. Even though you still sin, yep, it's an issue. 
His kindness leads us to repentance. Even though you still have a lot of areas of needed growth, me too. Guess what? I'm driving that bus. We've all got places for growth. And you know what? The Holy Spirit will finish the work that he started in us. He is going to sanctify. But when our focus becomes sanctification, we lose, fact of, we lose, we lose sight of the fact that we have been fully justified in the meantime. And that he will finish what he started. And it's him who does it. We get to walk into it, yes. But the Holy Spirit empowers us. And this is Christ still serving us. Every time we have an opportunity to serve, to go low and to exalt others, that we, Christ is serving us in that moment. He has given us his Holy Spirit to empower us to count others as more significant than ourselves. And we serve one another by praying for one another, by working with our hands for other people's good, for their joy, by offering true words of encouragement to, you know, you're serving me when you do that and I you, and you're also serving me when you give me a truthful word of admonishment. Chris, I'm seeing something that I think it's a pattern of sin and it's, it's, it's sapping, it's zapping your joy and it, it's, it's depleting the good godly life you're called to. You know, you're serving me when you tell me that. This is how we serve one another. Ephesians 2.10, for you and I, for we are Christ's workmanship, created anew in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared before all time that we should walk in them. And so the question as I close, what Good servanthood, works, deeds, words of encouragement. What, what has God prepared long ago for you to be walking in today? To walk in with the righteous, self-giving servanthood of Christ. Brother or sister in Christ, you are called to this kind of greatness because you bear the name of Jesus and you are filled with his Holy Spirit. How will you wield such a gift today? This is Christmas. This is what we celebrate. Would you pray with me? Father, truer, more confounding words were never spoken. Even as the Son of Man came not to serve us, but, and it came not to be served, but to serve us, to give his life for us. Lord, help us to behold this day the Son of Man who has secured for us an eternal salvation more precious than jewels, than gold. Lord, help us to be astounded with what we behold in him, what we have in him. Help us, Lord, as Pastor Seth led us through in the confession of sin, 
restore unto us a joy of this salvation and renew a right spirit in us that goes forth and with our spouses and with our children and with our neighbors and co-workers and, and, and all that we come across. Help us, Lord, to consider how, with your help, we might lower ourselves to count them as more significant, to serve them with words and actions and attitudes, affirmations, Lord, that we would be those who are marked with the servanthood of Advent, that we see in Advent this season, Lord, help us, help us. We thank you that we have great confidence in asking this because you absolutely will and you are finishing what you've started. Thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.